Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Let's hear God's word. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we we ask you that by your spirit, you will enable us to understand your word and what it means for us. Um, And then by your spirit, that you will apply that truth to our heart in such a way that we would embrace it by faith and walk in it by obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you to make a list of some of the most significant events in Jesus' life, what would they be? What would make the list? I think by a large margin, overwhelming majority would say Christ's death and resurrection. Pretty sure that would be the top two, which I say amen to that. That's great. Um, Those are great truths, and that's really the, the foundation, the cornerstone of our faith. But then, what other significant events would you put in that list? I think most likely the the miraculous birth of Jesus would round the top three. And then after that, it may get a little tricky or we may have some different answers. Some people, you know, some of us would probably write the the perfect life of Jesus, his active obedience. That's that's really important. That's one of his significant aspects of his ministry. Um, I think even some of us would include some of his uh, great miracles of raising Lazarus from the grave, of walking on water, of feeding the 5,000. So those are all answers that you can give. And I'm guessing maybe a couple of people would mention the ascension of Jesus. And the ascension of Jesus is what Jesus did after his resurrection, 40 days later to ascend to be with the Father. Now, why do I ask this question? I ask this question because I don't think many, if all, would give the answer of the session of Christ. And the session of Christ is this doctrine of when God, after, when Jesus, after he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. And that's where he is at today. Um, This is a significant event that's often been neglected by not only Christians, but by pastors and even by many theologians. If you check out many theology books, a lot of times that's um, either given like a few sentences, at the most maybe a paragraph. 
um, but not really talked about much. Now, that has not always been the case, though. The early Christian, the Christian fathers, the early fathers, they saw this doctrine as a main tenet of the Christian faith. How do I know this? Because it's in the Apostles' Creed and all the, and the seven subsequent ecumenical creeds that follow it. This doctrine is in all of those. And I'll just read what it says in the Apostles' Creed. It says, He, Jesus, ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, this semester in chapel, we've been focusing on Christology, on the study of Christ. And I believe it's a fitting way for us to end our semester on Christology by focusing on the session of Christ and what Jesus is presently doing on our behalf. Our passage this morning, Psalm 110, was one of the favorite songs of Jesus and the New Testament writers. They love this song. The most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament comes from this song. It's the very first verse of this song. It's Psalm 1, it's verse 1, which is all about the session of Christ. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, record Jesus' quote of this first line of the song. And if you, recall, if you recall, Jesus quoted the first verse of the song while debating the Pharisees. And he began by asking the Pharisees this profound question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? And he used Psalm 110 to put an end to that debate. And this is, this is what Matthew chapter 2, 46 reads. This is the Pharisees' response after Jesus explained Psalm 110. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus used Psalm 110 to do a mic drop on the Pharisees. They didn't ask him any more questions. And Jesus' answer is that the promised Messiah of Psalm 110 was actually him. Psalm 110 is all about Jesus. A thousand years before his birth, King David prophesied about him. The reason this psalm is quoted so many times by not only Jesus, but Peter, Paul, the other New Testament writers, is because it gives one of the clearest descriptions of who Jesus is. And the key question for us, for you in this text, is what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about Jesus? My prayer is that our answer will include the session of Christ, will include that he's the enthroned king sitting on his throne in heaven, interceding on our behalf. I hope that's an answer. And I hope that this doctrine will cause you to live with a reckless abandonment for his glory and to live a life marked by fervent and expectant prayer. So main idea, Psalm 110 teaches the session of Christ is good news. It's good news because the promised Messiah will be exalted both as the forever king and the forever priest. So let's begin. The first office attributed to the promised Messiah is that of the forever king. That's in the first three verses. Let me read those again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. It begins with David writing, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the line that's the most quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. But what exactly is going on here? I think the best way to understand this first verse is to begin by understanding who are all the people in it? Who's talking? Who's being referred to? Uh, we know the introduction of the verse that King David is the author of the psalm. 
Not only do we know that from the psalm itself, but Jesus later indicates David as the author. And Jesus goes a little bit further too in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 43, David wrote, or Jesus said that David wrote this psalm in the spirit. So David's the human author, author of this psalm and God the Holy Spirit is the divine author of this psalm. Here we see Jesus' affirmation of the divine inspiration of the Old Testament, just one of many. So David is the third party in the psalm. He's on the outside writing down what's happening between these other two figures. And who are these other two figures? The first one is Lord with all capital letters. Now our English translation does that to tell us this is talking about Yahweh, the proper name for God, the proper name for the triune God of the Bible. All right, so that's all capital letters, Lord. It's the triune God of the Bible. And more specifically, it's God the Father. And the Lord, all capital letters, says to my Lord, just one capital letter, capital L, which means Adonai, and that just means master. So Yahweh, specifically God the Father, says to David's Lord to sit at my right hand. Now, who can be the master or Lord over King David? Well, there's only one human that can fit that description for the Jewish people. The answer is the Messiah. Most Jewish scholars of Jesus' day believe Psalm 110 to be a messianic psalm. The Pharisees did. And to summarize, so David's writing, he's recording Yahweh, the triune God of the Bible, specifically God the Father, speaking to the Messiah, God the Son. And this is where Jesus' mic drop comes into play. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, or just hear me read it. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, and here's our Psalm 110 verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then Jesus goes back. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus asked the Pharisees what they thought about the Messiah. They knew their Bible, so they gave him the right answer. They said the Messiah would be the son of David. And they're right. The Messiah will come through the family lineage of King David. But what they forgot is that Jesus is also God. And that's the question that they couldn't really wrap their, their heads around because Jesus asked them, well, why did David say to my Lord, Psalm 110? How can the Messiah be both before and after David? They got the whole after David part, but how can the Messiah be before David? And we know what the answer is, right? We know the answer is because Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's how. That's why Paul can write in Colossians 1.15 that all things were created by Jesus. Jesus has and will always be God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So Jesus was before David. He's eternal, David's not. But Jesus is also after David, for he came to earth, he took on flesh. God the Son became a human. And this is the doctrine of the incarnation. So Jesus, humanly speaking, was born at a certain time and certain place. So he's both before and after David. Now the most important aspect of this verse though is the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. And there's a lot to be unpacked in this phrase, but let's just look at it in two parts. First, he's seated. 
And then where is he seated? He's seated at God's right hand. So first, Jesus is sitting. Why is that significant? It's significant because it signifies that Christ's redemptive work is done. Amen. The session of Christ causes us to look backward to the redemptive work of Christ. Christ accomplished what he was sent into the world to do. He's taken on flesh. He's lived the perfect life required by God. He's died the death in place of sinners. He's risen from the grave. Everything that is needed for redemption to be accomplished is done. Christ has paid it all. Amen. That is why Jesus is able to say it is finished. Now that he has done it all, he's ready to sit and to be publicly coordinated as the forever king of the entire cosmos. Now, this picture makes me think of whenever I was growing up and my dad would come home after work. Now, my dad, he was an HVAC technician. He could pretty much fix any household appliance. And he would usually work six or seven days a week, usually long hours. He wouldn't get home until dark. When he would get home, we'd eat dinner as a family. Then right after we eat, he would go to his big recliner and sit down. All right. And we would joke as kids that that was our dad's throne, all right? And what my dad, what it was kind of, when I see that picture, what that means is my dad just worked a really long, hard day. And the reason he's able to sit down and chill is because he just completed his work. The work for the day is done. And I have that imagery. Like that, like my dad, Jesus sat down on his throne because the work is done. Now, unlike my dad, my dad sat down so that he could actually rest a little bit. He wants to spend time with us, but he needed to rest. But Jesus isn't sitting down to rest for what we're about to see. He's going to be constantly active as he's sitting on this throne. So Jesus sitting reminds us of the past redemptive work he accomplished on our behalf. Second, Jesus sits at God's right hand. This signifies Jesus' authority and power. The right hand is a place of prominence. In a way, God the Father is handing over the reins of the kingdom to Christ in this very public way. King Jesus' reign has begun. Now, when Jesus was born, the king had arrived. In his life, death, and resurrection, the king redeemed his people. But here at the session of Christ, the king is ruling. And you don't want to just stop the story of Christ's resurrection because you missed the whole part of Christ's ruling, okay? And that's a big part. We want to know that Christ reigns over all creation. He's reigning right now. Now, what do kings do? They reign. Jesus reigns. As we speak, he's reigning as king over the entire cosmos. And the rest of the verses in this first section are about how there are only two types of people under the rule and reign of King Jesus. And yes, everybody is under the rule and reign of Jesus, okay? You, we all fall in these two categories. The first categories are those who will be vanquished. The second category are those victorious volunteers. Firstly, there are those who oppose the rightful King Jesus. They oppose him because they want another king. I mean, that king could be yourself, that king could be your family, that king could be your job, GPA, it could be whatever that king is. Now, what happens to you when you oppose King Jesus? Well, David tells us, you become King Jesus' footstool and nobody wants to be a footstool. This imagery depicts an ancient ritual of kings of old in which the victor king will put his foot on the throat of the defeated enemy as a symbol of authority and dominance. 
As one of my favorite theologians put it, Shylin, he said, trying to fight against God is like a kid with a super soaker trying to conquer Spain. It just makes you laugh. Simply put, it's not happening. If you die in opposition to Christ, he will defeat you. Now, on the other hand, if you volunteer for the king's service, you will be victorious with him. Verse three states his people will offer themselves freely to the king. These are those who don't see King Jesus as an enemy, but as a savior. He has saved them from destruction. As a result, they freely offer themselves to his service. Now, what are his servants wearing? They're wearing holy garments. They're soldiers who have received the righteousness of Christ through faith. These soldiers are a kingdom of priests. I say that because holy garments are what priests wear. So who are these soldiers? I believe these soldiers are Christ's church. The church are those spirit-filled believers in Christ. Though Christ is enthroned, he sent us the Holy Spirit to empower his people. So the enthronement of Christ has to come before the Pentecost and before the pouring out of his spirit. So church, you are victorious. Christian, you are victorious because you have the same power inside you that raised Christ from the dead. Jesus does not leave his people in defeat. Instead, he leaves them with his Holy Spirit to beat down and to overtake the gates of hell. Okay. Now, why is this good news to us? Why is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, reigning as king forever? Why is that good news? So what? Well, let me just give you two ways that this, could, this doctrine can impact your life. First, it should spur you on to make disciples of all nations. Jesus, I believe, alluded to this psalm in the Great Commission. Let me read Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The soon to be session of Christ as his reign as king, I believe is what is the foundation for the great commission. We go because we know the one who has all power and authority in heaven and earth. He gives us the power, he gives us the message. We are messengers for this forever king who will never be defeated. He already beat sin, Satan, death. What do you have to be afraid of? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now this truth is good news to us as believers and to, as ministry leaders because we know who reigns over all things. Our confidence is not in ourselves, a church program, academic degree, grade point average, praise the Lord on that one. No, it's in the power and authority of the seated King Jesus in, in heaven. You know, he's promised to give us good gifts to the church, including pastors, teachers. Our confidence is the king who commissions us not in our attainment of lack thereof of wealth, social status, or intellect, but our confidence is in the king who commissions us. Christian, you have, you have been commissioned and equipped by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's all you need. That's all the confidence you need. You don't need anything else to convince you otherwise. You have his backing and that's, that's, that's enough. So Jesus' posture of sitting should lead you to an action of going. That's really kind of the main point of application. Jesus' posture of sitting should lead you to an action of going. That's what it did for the early church. We see that played out in the book of Acts. I believe they're motivated by this doctrine and it led them to make disciples for Christ. One example is Stephen, the first Christian martyr, 
right before he was stoned to death, he received a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. Acts 7, 56 states this. And Stephen said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. He then, Lord Jesus, received my spirit. He then said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I believe God granted Stephen that glimpse into the heavenly throne room because he knew that is what was one of the doctrines that spurred him to ultimately live, to give up his life. And Christ is this forever king who deserves all worship, including the worship of our life, even giving it up. What I love about this passage is that Jesus is standing. And, you know, we we're just now talking about how Jesus was sitting at his throne. It's a standing Jesus, not a sitting Jesus. Now, why is that the case? Well, we really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But just to use some sanctified speculation, all right, this is from me and not the Bible. So just a little excursus. What I believe he's standing because he's standing to honor his servant. He's standing to recognize and to receive him into the kingdom. So Stephen's about to take his last breath and Jesus stands up. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come home. So this is the king we serve. We don't serve a king who's a tyrant, who's always ordering his servants around. We serve a king who washes his servants' feet. We serve a king who stands in honor and receives his children gladly. Man, that's a great king to serve. Why not serve this king then with reckless abandonment? What do you have to lose? Worst case scenario, you're ushered into the presence of Christ after death. That's a win-win. Um, one quote that I think encapsulates, encapsulates this point is from the Civil War General Stonewall Jackson, who said this. He said, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed a time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live. And then all men will be equally brave. That's what the session of Christ should lead every Christian to be like, to live life as safe in spiritual battle or physical battle as in bed. You're not worrying about stuff when you're sleeping, right? You don't need to be worried about things when you're not sleeping. Our king is reigning on his throne and he's Lord over all. The session of Christ is good news because it gives you the foundation and surety to live life courageously for his namesake. Second, the doctrine of Christ enthroned as king should also give you purple colored glasses to view the world through. What do I mean by this? Well, I mean that the truth that King Jesus right now is in the heavenly throne room completely sovereign over his created order should change how you view everything, how you view your schoolwork, your job, your family, your hobbies, your political views, like everything. It should all be viewed through the lens of Christ's lordship. Christ is Lord over all, over every square inch. And if this is the case, then all that we do, everything that we do, it all matters. So we should offer our academic work. We should offer our jobs, everything we do to King Jesus as worship to him. There's no sacred secular divide because Christ reigns over it all. We must glorify God in all that we do because he's worthy of all praise and worship. All right, the next office attributed to the promised Messiah is that of the forever priest. That's in verses four through seven. Let me read those verses. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Verse one may be a summary of this psalm, but I think verse four is the central and climactic verse of the psalm. We move from the throne room to the temple. Jesus is now anointed as the forever priest. God the Father swore to himself that the Messiah, Jesus, will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is not only the eternal king, he's an eternal priest. He's both king and priest. Now that's a huge statement because it's only in the Messiah that both of these offices are truly held in one person from Israel. Throughout Jewish history, the office of king and priest was always to be separated. Now this verse, though, is cites this Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. Great name. He actually only appears three times or in three books of the Bible. Appears in the book of Genesis, only in Genesis 14, verses 8 through 20. He disappears, then he comes back in this psalm, and then he disappears again, then he comes back in the book of Hebrews. Which the book of Hebrews, by the way, may be a sermon on Psalm 110. So if you want a better sermon, go check out the book of Hebrews. But much ink has been spilled over who is Melchizedek. And I mean, there's like whole books and probably dissertations devoted to the mystery surrounding this Old Testament character. And just for sake of time, we can't give it a whole exhaustive treatment. Um, But some scholars believe Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. Others believe him to be a real person from a real place and he's the real king of it. Um, Both sides make convincing arguments but I lean more towards Melchizedek as this pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. Um, the reason I do that is just Hebrews talks about this, uh, talks about Melchizedek as not having a genealogy, not having a mother or father. Seems to indicate he may be eternal, which we know only Jesus is. But what, whatever your interpretation of who Melchizedek may be, it doesn't really influence the main point of why David mentions him. The most important aspect of Melchizedek is that he's the only other person who held both offices of king and priest. That's why he's mentioned. Genesis 14 tells us Melchizedek was the king of Salem and that he was a priest of the Most High. So Melchizedek, king and priest. Therefore, that's the reason David and later the writer to the Hebrews compares Melchizedek to Jesus. Though Jesus is not from the line of Aaron, he's an eternal priest from the line of Melchizedek. Now, verses five through seven will detail more about this king, priest, Messiah, vanquishing his foes by shattering kings, judging nations, and laying waste to those who oppose him. It really is just a picture of what the book of Revelation will later lay out about King Jesus' second coming. Well, we know the promised Messiah, Jesus, he's anointed as the forever priest. Now, what do priests do? Well, priests reconcile. Priests speak to God on behalf of his people. Jesus is speaking to God the Father on behalf of his people. He's interceding for you. He's reconciling you. Jesus is the perfect priest who cleanses his people from their sins and will always represent you before God the Father. Always. Because he's always there. He's forever. He's eternal. Now, why is this good news that Jesus is a forever priest that sits at the Father's right hand? Well, let me give you three real quick reasons why I think this is good news for you this morning. First, Jesus, the forever priest right now, is interceding on behalf of you, Christian. And this should lead you to fervent and expectant prayer. Hebrews chapter 7, 25 states this. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make 
intercession for them. At this very moment, Jesus is making intercessory prayer on behalf of you while sitting, while sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus is active. He's constantly interceding for his people. And this is great to hear because back in the day, the, the high priest would only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. Jesus is so much better than that guy. Jesus is in the Holy of Holies at all times. He's perpetually interceding for you. What comfort this should bring to you, Christian. You always have an ear to hear you and a voice to speak on your behalf. Always. Jesus. This is why we pray in Jesus' name, because he's our intercessor. He's the reason we have access to God. He's the reason we don't need a, a, a priest today to have a confession with. There's only one mediator between God and man. That's Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think of this. What if you had a direct line to the Oval Office? You could talk to and request anything from the president of the United States of America, from the leader of the free world. I'm pretty sure you would call him pretty frequently and ask some big things of him because he's got some power. Well, how much more so would you, should we go to God in prayer, who's way more glorious and way more powerful than any earthly leader? And real quick, I also want to pause here and think about some of these implications and for anyone here today who's feeling completely overwhelmed by sin or feels like sin is defeating them in their life, if you're being paralyzed by the guilt and shame of your sins, and as a result, you're pushing away from God, and yes, that can happen in seminary. And actually, sometimes it's more likely to happen in seminary because we become numb to the gospel. And if, if that is you this morning, I have such good news for you. Listen closely to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 33. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, no one can condemn you. Not Satan, not your friends, not your family, not even yourself. Like you can't do it. You know why? Because you have an advocate who so happens to be the king of the entire world on your side. Jesus is your intercessor. He's your defense attorney. He hasn't lost the case yet. Christian, when you're feeling discouraged about the seeming victory of sin in your life, man, look up. Turn your gaze from yourself to the heavens. Remember the enthroned king who's interceding for you. Look, if the thrice holy God isn't condemning you, then no one can. The king doesn't condemn you. He loves you with an everlasting love in which nothing can separate us, separate you from. Now, also, this should lead us not only to pray for ourselves, but for others as well. We of all people should be prayer warriors for those around us. Stephen's last words were praying to God to forgive those who are hurling stones at him. I mean, please, God, give us the strength to be like Stephen to live like Stephen, to pray like Stephen, to die like Stephen. It makes me think of this 
This text reminds me of Brother R.F. Gates. He was one of my wife's childhood pastors. He's now worshiping our Lord Jesus in heaven. I never met him, but I've heard stories upon stories about him and his love for Jesus. I've heard that he was a passionate and earnest preacher. I've also heard he was one of the most evangelistic people you will ever meet. Many people from the church said they, they legitimately don't think he's ever met someone he didn't share the gospel with, like legitimately. Like he probably shared the gospel with every single person. My wife can give so many testimonies of so many times. Anybody he's around, he's gonna share the gospel with them and in a real genuine way. But why do I bring up Brother R.F. Gates? The reason is because the thing I heard most about him wasn't his preaching, wasn't his evangelism, but it was his prayer life. Because everyone who had been in a prayer meeting with Brother R.F. Gates remarked that he's been with the Lord. He knows he's got the Father's ear. My mother-in-law said of him one time that he breathed glory. Love that. And may the case be for us as well that we're known as men and women of prayer, that we breathe glory. If you want to be a great preacher, I think R.F. Gates is a great example. Be a great prayer. If you want to be a great evangelist, be a great prayer. And the second, Jesus as a forever preacher reminds you, Christian, of your destiny, of your true home. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but Jesus is presently in heaven as fully human. Okay, that means a human has entered heaven and he remains there. I think this is one of the aspects of his intercession is that he is there as fully human and constantly reminding everyone around that he's fully human. And that points to the future in which we will all be like Jesus one day in our glorified bodies, worshiping God in the new heavens, and new earth. So our hope is not in eternity as disembodied souls, but as real resurrected material human bodies in God's presence forever. So Christ sitting at the right hand of God should remind us that Christ is not the first, Christ may be the first body there, may be the first one there, but he's not gonna be the last one. Also, we're reminded that Jesus is going to come back and that all of his enemies will become his footstool. He will return the same way he left. He'll come to rescue us. In addition, his enemies will be his footstool. Now, again, this is a somber warning for us all, especially to those who are not Christians this morning. And I know that we're at a Christian school, we're at a seminary, but that's doesn't mean that I'm naive enough to think there's no one here that doesn't love Jesus or has him as their Lord and Savior. I just want to call you to bend your knee and to bow your heart to this great king that we've been talking about. I mean, he's, he's so great. Why not? He's offering you everything. He's giving up your son for you, for sinners like you. Why not come to Christ now? And then Christian, this future aspect of Christ's destruction of his enemies should not cause a prideful spirit about you, but a going spirit. You should live in light of that future. And if you do, you'll make sure to share the gospel with every single person you meet. And then the last reason real quick, Jesus' intercession is good news because it's the steadfast anchor of your soul. This is what the writer of Hebrews, aka the apostle Paul writes in Hebrews chapter six, verses 19 through 20. Thank you, Dr. Black, who taught me that. All right. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer to the Hebrews believed the doctrine of the session of Christ, of him as this intercessory priest, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. 
What's the purpose of an anchor? It's to keep a ship safe and secure in harbor and to help control it during bad weather. So therefore, if you're here this morning and struggling with your assurance or your security in Christ, then the session of Christ is good news because King Jesus reminds you that your salvation is accomplished and is secure in him. If you're here this morning, you're going through a storm and wondering whether or not you're gonna be able to keep your head above water, then the session of Christ is good news for you because King Jesus is, the, is sovereign over that storm and he's interceding for you while you're in that storm. That's good news. So this doctrine, if believed and applied, can be a trusted anchor for your soul. We all need some anchors. And the Bible tells us this is one. The session of Christ is good news. It's good news because Jesus is reigning as the forever king and he's reconciling as the forever priest. This ought to be the fuel that leads us to live life on mission, on God's mission to reconcile the world to himself. Let's pray. Dear sovereign Lord, Father, we don't deserve this standing or seated Christ, but when we believed on him, you gave him to us and us to him. Grant that it would be the, our, the deepest desires of our hearts all the days of our lives to see him glorified, to see him reigning in our hearts and lives, to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we seek that glory, as we seek his exaltation, would you comfort us in every hardship of life? For we ask this in the reigning name of Jesus. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.